We are uh, continuing to move through Genesis, and we're going to begin to pick up a little bit of steam. I mentioned that when we started the series that, you know, what we're looking at, we've entitled this series, as you see behind me, Foundations. And, and that's because the book of Genesis is not just the first book. It's the book that actually lays the foundation for the rest of the Bible. But if you peel back the layers of that, it actually gives to us the foundations of all of life, of the entire universe. It provides for us a biblical worldview, a grid through which to understand our existence. And so it's just continually addressing foundational realities of life and existence. And the first three chapters in particular, we moved very slowly and we wanted to pull that apart because there was just so much going on. But, but now the, the kind of narrative flow of the book is going to begin to pick up a little bit of pace. So we're going to take it in some bigger chunks and really begin to see a bit of the, uh, the outworkings of Genesis 1 through 3 at work in kind of a new world, so to speak. Remember, that's kind of what we're entering into in chapter 4, that this is kind of the new world. It's the new fallen world. Genesis 1 through 3 has mainly been this picture of, of the world before the fall, the world the way it was supposed to be. But now everything's been broken, and now what we find out in chapter 4 is that there is this divine war taking place in life outside of Eden. That's what I've entitled the message today. And the reality of war, in our context, our contemporary context, it feels very foreign to most of us. More, most of us never grew up in a, a war-torn country. The, the most exposure we've had to war is on television, in movies, or you know, some series that we're watching, or maybe the news. As, as you know, For example, we watch the war in Ukraine and wars in other parts of the world, but we watch from the distance. And it's very hard. You know, we watch, and it's, it's, it's devastating to think about being a, in a country that war is being waged all around you, right? It's very hard for us to process this, the, the, the kind of angst and anxiety and turmoil and, and just the, the way that that would just shape your life in entirely different ways. But that's hard for us to process. In Canada was actively involved in, in both world wars, we were involved in the, the Korean War, in the Gulf War. We had troops in Afghanistan. But the last time a war was actually waged in any part on Canadian soil was the War of 1812. I don't know if any of you are alive then. I'm assuming no. You know, some of you are pretty old, but not that old. <laughs> but you see, the reality of, of life outside of Eden is, is this mentality that we actually are living in the midst of a war. And so while it feels foreign and it looks like it's far away, the Bible actually wants us to realize that actually, no, no, you're in the midst of a war right now. You are actually on the battlefield right now. Whether you see it or not, whether you recognize it or not, whether you believe it or not, you are standing, sitting right now in the midst of a war. And this war is really an ongoing battle that is now being fought between two sides and only two sides. 
that the two sides of this war were actually separated in Genesis 3, 14, and 15 when God both promises and prophesies to the serpent that there is going to be this battle that ensues between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And this chapter right here, chapter 4, is intended to be read alongside chapter 3. And Moses, the author, intends for us to see that this is a direct overflow of this war. It's actually a sketch, so to speak, of how the war is going to be fought, and it serves in many ways as a paradigm for us, the people of God, who find themselves in the midst of this very same war. You see, we're all in this battle. The question is, whose side are we on? And how do we fight? And I want to look at it through this lens. I want us to think about success in the war, fighting in this battle. And for us to do that well, maybe phrase it like this, if we want success in the war, we must recognize four things. The first thing is this, that the battle begins immediately, and we must be ready. Look at me at verse 1 through 5. It says this, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. It's interesting here uh, that, that we see that the, the author of the book of Genesis, Moses, he wastes no time. He, he's right on the heels of the fall. God has delivered the curse to both the serpent and then to the ground. And he's told Adam and Eve about this new life. And the very next scene, we are immediately brought into this war, the battlefields. There's a sense of urgency that uh, Moses wants us to feel. He wants us to be ready for the fight. He don't, doesn't want us sleeping on the battlefield. What I find fascinating here is not only does the battle begin, the battle flowing right out of Genesis 3.15, not only does that begin immediately, but here the expectation of the, the promised seed is actually immediate as well. You see, Eve, right here, she... she, she she obviously gets pregnant. God has been faithful to his promise that she's going to be fruitful and multiply. And what's in her mind as she's delivering her first child? Here is the promised seed. The text give us, gives us every indication that Eve felt like this was the one. Here he is. He's finally here. Already, I guess you could say. He's already here. Look. Look, he's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to fix what's been broken by our sin. He's going to restore us back into the presence of God. He's right here. And I won't go into all the details, but you'll notice this even as we've looked at this brief section already. Cain is actually very similar to Adam. He's going to operate in many of the same ways with some massive differences. But here, Eve believes the promised one has arrived. But what we see quickly is 
that someone else is brought into the picture. We're introduced to a brother, Abel. We're told about their occupations. Abel is a shepherd. He's a keeper of sheep. Cain works the ground. He's a farmer. Both of these are noble professions. And in verse 3, what we see is that the conflict begins to intensify, and I want you to see that the battle being waged in chapter 4 is really a battle for worship. The battle of history, the battle that began in Genesis 3.15, listen, you just have to understand this, it is at the very core a battle for your worship. And at the heart of worship, listen, is your heart. Now, Cain, the farmer, and Abel, the shepherd, they bring an offering to God. They bring to him a sacrifice. It seems very clear that they had learned from Adam and Eve and through the revelation of God, the ongoing presence of God, that God was not only to be worshipped, but one of the ways God was to be worshipped was through sacrifice. You brought an offering to the altar, and you, you brought it to God, and, and you were supposed to bring an acceptable offering to God. But what we find out right here is that only one of the offerings is acceptable to God. There's lots of debate around this. Uh, a, a lot of trees have been killed and ink has been spilled trying to figure out why exactly Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's was rejected. But I actually don't believe it's that complicated. I think the answer is, is right here in the passage. It's not hidden. It, it is uh, implied. And by the way, I think every faithful Jew would have seen this. It would have been so obvious to them what, what, what was going on here. You see, the answer lies in a contrast between the two offerings, not the, the substance of the offerings primarily, but the nature of how they were brought to God. Let me show you what I mean. I want you to notice the kind of offering that Abel brought. Moses tells us, Cain, or excuse me, Abel brought, what does it say there? The firstborn of the flock and their fat portions. Again, every faithful Jew who read through the law understood that what God was looking for was the, the firstborn, the best of the flock. He wanted the best parts of the offering, the fatty parts of the offering that were burned in honor of him. And I want you just to look at what the text says. Look at the contrast with Cain. Cain just brought some of the fruit of the ground. Notice, listen, the word first fruits is noticeably absent here. Again, if you read through the rest of the Old Testament, it's not that God didn't, didn't want grain offerings. Those, those kind of offerings were perfectly acceptable before God. In fact, God delighted in them. But when you brought a grain offering to God, just like when you brought an offering from your flock, it was supposed to be the first, the best. Cain's offering is superficial. It's something he has to do, but his heart isn't in it. Abel understood that God wanted the very best. Abel understood that God deserved the very best. Abel understood that everything he had was a gift from God. Abel understood that worship was ultimately about the disposition of a heart that looks to God. Listen, that doesn't look to the world for, for all of life, but looks to God for all of life. That recognizes that any, anything good in this life, anything that's been provided has been given graciously by God. And so he deserves the best of everything. He deserves to be honored for everything. 
Abel showed total dedication to the Lord. He gave his very best, and in so doing, here's what he expressed, faith in Yahweh. God, my life depends on you. I, I, I can't sustain my life by myself. And in contrast to that, Cain is saying the opposite. Cain is saying, God, I'm not going to give you my best. I'm going to live by the fruit of my labors. I'm going to take what I think I deserve. I don't care what you say you deserve. I'll give you what I think I want to give you. And you know, the author of Hebrews, it's, it's, always, it's always great when the New Testament comments on an Old Testament passage, okay? Because the New Testament authors are inspired authors who are actually teaching us how to understand the Old Testament. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says about this offering. It says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. You see, it's about faith. Through which he was commended as righteous. By the way, that sounds a lot like Abraham. He was made righteous by his faith. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. His testimony lives on. He teaches us about what God truly wants, the kind of worship God delights in, the kind of offerings that are acceptable to God. They're the offerings and the worship that are given by faith. And the call here for you and me is to be ready. Abel was ready. When he went to worship God, he was ready. He knew who he was coming to worship. He knew what God expected. He knew what God wanted, and he brought exactly that. Cain, he didn't care. He was unprepared. He was disinterested. He was superficial. And what he found out was that God was disinterested in his disinterested offering. And I just I want you to hear this again. The battle for worship is always, always a battle for your heart. It always has been the very beginning of the Bible to the very end. What God is most concerned about is your heart. Let's put this in a, in a kind of a contemporary context. God is not interested in our perfunctory, you know, external, ritualistic kind of worship that is devoid of, of any heart for God. Let me say it like this. God, God could care less about you coming in here and putting on a show of worship. Do you realize that? In fact, God despises it. You, you walk into God's house and you, you raise your hands and sing the lyrics, but your mind is preoccupied with other things. You're more concerned about what other people think of you. You, you really aren't coming to give God any kind of, of worship worthy of his name. You're, you're, just, you're thinking about getting out of here. You're looking at your watch. You're thinking about what other things. God, God doesn't care about disinterested, superficial worship. He wants none of that with his people. He wants people, listen, who are ready to worship him. He wants people, listen, who who don't walk into here and kind of go, I, I, I hope I can finally get to the place of worship. He wants people who are primed and ready, who understand who he is, who, who understand that this is the God, the king of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth. This is the God who is merciful and kind. He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. This is the God, listen, who, who gives life and gives it abundantly. When you come to worship God, God doesn't want anything but your best. He wants all of your heart. 
No half-hearted devotion, no half-hearted... You know, and by, by the way, this, is, this has less to do about style and everything to do about sincerity. This is almost nothing to do about the forms of worship and everything to do about your faith in worship. So I'm not standing here trying to prescribe how you're supposed to do that. All I know is this. Abel is an enthusiastic, passionate worshiper of the God of the universe, and Cain is a disinterested, self-absorbed worshiper of himself. And that makes all the difference in the world. And I can, I can just say, I can say this, listen, if you've been giving your heart to worship of everything but God all week, you'll never come into this place and give God the worship He deserves one day a week. Our, our displays of worship, by the way, they're not unimportant. And God's not against ritual. God prescribes ritual. He just wants your heart in it. Our displays of worship, they, they ought to flow out of a life of worship. We ought to be a people who are ready because we're cultivating worship in our lives every single day. And so when we come in here together, the hope and the goal is this. This is simply the culmination of a week of worship. You know, we, we've been preparing our hearts. We've been worshiping God. And now we get to be together and lift our voices. By the way, what an aw- like, it was awesome hearing the voices this morning. It was awesome singing praises together. Amen. Was your heart there? I pray it was. And I pray that this was such a delight to your heart because that's what is so pleasing to God. Notice this secondly. If you want success in the war, in the battle, life outside of you, the battle betrays allegiance. Be repentant. This is so fascinating. Look at verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Let's pause there for a moment. I mean, this is amazing. Just consider this for a moment. God is still speaking to fallen human beings. And he confronts Cain in his anger. And you have to picture the scene. This is like a father coming to a child. This isn't, this isn't like an angry ruler, a tyrant, you know, like, like many of us often picture when it comes to God. This is a loving father coming alongside his angry, rebellious, rebellious child. And he's looking at his child and saying, why, why are you angry? Why are you so out of joint? You know, how we respond when sin is confronted in our lives reveals something profoundly important about our hearts. His anger is revealing his affections and therefore his allegiance. Follow that, okay? His anger is simply revealing his affections and therefore his allegiance. Jesus says something similar, by the way. He he wants you to look at your heart and examine your heart. And he says what he says. He says, do you know this? Out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, you can tell what really is going on, the affections of your heart, by, by what is spewed out of your mouth, especially, might I add, in moments of anger. Emotion. And 
And what's so incredible here is that God, God is telling him that he can fight sin. He's looking at him and saying, you, you can fight sin. Do well, Cain. Do well. Be accepted. It's, it's not too late. Can you hear that? Can you hear the father? It's not too late to turn this ship around. How many parents, right? It's not too late. And listen, he's already done wrong. He's already dismissed what God, what he should have brought. He knew what he should have brought to God. That's the implication of the text. And he already chose not to give God the best. But now is the moment of greatest temptation. And now is the opportunity for faithfulness. This is the first time in the Bible that the word sin is used. And sin here is personified as a violent animal. If you do well, Cain, listen, sin is lurking. It's crouching. It's like an animal crouching in the bush, waiting to pounce on its victim. My brother showed me a, a, a video, me and, me and my wife, a video last night of, of, um, of a coyote. He's caught on a parent's camera. Some of you have probably seen this and have obsessed about it for a long time, protecting your kids, because this happens every once in a while. But there's this, this picture of a coyote in the bush lurking in the bushes, and there's a little kid, a little girl playing around in the yard, and all of a sudden, it darts out and tries to grab the kid and knocks the kid over, but scurries away quickly. I was like, man, what a vivid image for sin. It's right there. I mean, it's crouching. It's, it's, it's hidden in the darkness, but guess what? It's ready to pounce all over you, and it wants to tear you to shreds. Can you kind of hear you know, the, the subtlety in the text? It's kind of like a serpent in the tree waiting to devour. It's like a, a roaring lion prowling around seeking somebody to devour, as Peter says. If you do not do well, you leave yourself wide open to attack by this ferocious animal, like a lion crouching for the kill. And by the way, it's, it's seeking dominance over you. It wants to rule over you, to control you, to master you. It wants to own you, and it wants to imprison you. So what must you do? You must fight. That's what he's saying. You must rule over it. You don't, don't let it win. This battle, listen, the battle with sin will always betray your true allegiance. Do you realize that? At least your allegiance in the moment. And allegiance in the Christian life or, or spiritual maturity, if you will, is not measured by perfect righteousness. It's actually measured, do you realize this, with regular repentance. Now, to be fair, there, there, you know, sin and the pursuit of sin should decrease as you mature. It's never going away, not in this lifetime, but one of the greatest, this is often missed in the Christian life, one of the greatest marks of spiritual maturity and your true allegiance to God is found in not just regular repentance, but how quickly you run to God in repentance. And we all sin, right? We know this. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. There's not a day that goes by, you know, that we don't sin. If you say, well, I'm, I'm the exception, you just sinned, you liar. 
We just, we, it's not possible. Here, the issue in the Christian life is how quick are you willing to recognize your sin? How quick are you willing to run to God in repentance for your sin? In leadership circles, you know, they use this language. Um, they call this the, the courage of the second decision. You ever heard that term? Right? That's, that's like in the business world or, you know, in, 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 in life or leadership. When you make a decision and it goes disastrously wrong, right, what are you going to do in that moment? And, and mature, strong, healthy leaders, you want to know what they do? They don't keep going along the path of destruction. They don't just like, well, I made the decision. I'm just going to stick with it. I'm going to follow this through to the end. No. They have the courage of the second decision. They have the courage to stand up and say, I was wrong. This is not the right direction. I'm turning. We're going in the different direction. And I would just say to you, that's a really, really sweet picture of what it's supposed to look like in the Christian life when we've already sinned. Will you, by the grace of God, have the courage to make the second, often harder decision? Because the truth, isn't this true? It's really easy when we're in sin to keep walking down the path of sin, right? How many of us in in the emotions, particularly, let's use this, in anger, how easy is it to just stop in the middle of anger and go, I was wrong, I am being humbled under the mighty hand of God. Forgive me. No, in anger, the, the easiest thing in the world to do is just to like dig your heels in. I'm right. I'm going to go down. I'm going to burn this house to the ground, and I'm taking you with me. That's what we do in our anger. <laughs> to turn... From sin, when you see it, when confronted, listen, this is a mark of spiritual health, maturity. It's demonstrating that your true allegiance is not to yourself, it's to God. And Cain loses this battle. And look what it says he does. We, we know the story, right? It says, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Hear that language again. Listen, seven times the name... Moses loves literary devices, and he loves the number seven. Seven times he uses the name Abel. Seven times he emphasizes the word brother. It's this symbol of perfection. It's this symbol of completeness. It's supposed to elevate our understanding of the significance of what is taking place. He spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? This is is so sad. It's a, you know, there's there's a kind of southern... American saying, I believe that's its root. Somebody could correct me later. I might be wrong. But you know, uh, when you're disciplining your kids, you take them out behind the woodshed. You heard that phrase? It's this symbol of punishment that's coming. You know, you hear that and you run, right? There's this kind of phrase that's developed out of this passage here in Jewish literature in particular. It's taking somebody out to the field. And it's symbolic of the intent to do somebody great harm. You want to take somebody out to the field, you know what that means? Nobody around to hear. Nobody around to help. I'll do what I want to do in secret. And he lures his brother out into the field, obviously under false pretenses. And there he violently murders his own brother. 
than God. Approaches him again. This is astounding. And when he confronts him, just I just you need to see this is incredible. So what, what have you done? Surely there's going to be remorse, right? Surely there's going to be some kind of sorrow. Surely he's going to understand that he's been caught, that he, he hasn't hidden anything, that there was somebody else out in the field with him in that moment, and it was God who sees all. Surely tears, surely repentance. No, no, the response. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, yes, Cain. Yes, you are, or you were. Now you're just your brother's murderer. He betrays his allegiance. Maybe I can say it like this for us as a basic principle. Listen, our affections, because again, remember, this is about the heart. Our affections determine our attitudes, which drive our actions and reveal our allegiance. Cain's affections were for Cain, for him. And that determined his attitude of anger. By the way, anytime you're angry, just ask the question, why am I angry? And then go read James 4, and what you're going to find out is this. I'm not getting what I want. This person did this to me. I can't believe they speak to me like that. How, who do you think you are to treat me like that? You see, I, 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 me, 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 me. I'm the center of everything. Our affections determine our attitudes, and that drives us. This, this angry attitude is bursts forth in the action of murder. And it reveals our true allegiance. So let me just peel the layers back and just ask you this question. Who do you love? Who, who do you love most? Can, can you hear Jesus, right, when he is asked the question, good teacher, what is the greatest commandment? What's his response? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. With all your mind. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon all these things, the whole law is built. Can you, can you hear Jesus say, the whole law is built upon the foundation of love. If you love God, you will love your neighbor, and love does no wrong to his neighbor. And here, here what we see is that Cain violates both in an instant. He does not love God. He doesn't even worship him the way God desires to be worshipped. And that is manifested and expressed in not a love for neighbor, but a hatred of his brother and the murder of his brother. Cain loves Cain. Who do you love? Repentance is critical in the Christian life and I want to give you maybe a new way to think of repentance today. Repentance isn't just a recognition of your failure. This is really important, I think. And if you're a Christian here today, and I wonder if you've ever thought about it like this, but listen, repentance is not just a recognition of your, your failure. It is that. Listen, repentance is actually an expression of your love for God. Do you realize that? Why? Because in repentance, what are you saying? God, God, I, I, have, I have hurt you, God. 
against you and you alone have I sinned, God. God, God I love you, and I see what my sin has done to you, God, and I, I need your forgiveness because I, I, I do love you, God. My allegiance is to you, God, and I, I want to follow you, God. I want to obey you, God, and I didn't do that this time, God, and I'm asking you, God, forgive me. I want to follow you. That's what repentance is. But here's the problem. You see, you will never find victory over sin and temptation if you have not given your allegiance to God. You just won't. Sin will be crouching at your door. It will pounce and devour devour you every single time. This is why the gospel begins with the words repent and believe, right? When the the apostles were preaching the gospel, and they told them the good news of what Jesus had done, that he, he was the promised seed. He died, and he paid the penalty for sin, but he rose victoriously from the grave. You know, the message, what shall we do? Repent and believe was the answer. Why? Because repentance and faith reveal your allegiance. God, you are my king. You are my master. And repentance brings times of refreshing to our soul in the Christian life. And for you today, maybe, maybe God is kind of knocking at the door of your heart even today. Sin has been crouching there a long time, and you have not found victory over sin in your life. And the reason is, is simple, and it's maybe clear to you today. It's because your allegiance has actually been to you, and God is saying you need to exchange your allegiance to self for allegiance to me. Bow to me as king. Bow to me as master. Do not let sin rule over you. Let me rule over you. I'm a good and gracious master. Sin wants to enslave you and punish you and destroy you. I want to, listen, who the sun sets free is free indeed, amen? I want to free you, Jesus says. I want to give you life, not death. I want to give you eternal joy, not eternal destruction. Run into my arms, God says. Whatever you do with God, with Jesus in particular, listen, in the midst of this battle, both are going to have consequences. That's why we see next that the battle brings consequences. And here's our call, be resistant. Verse 10 through 24, begin to unfold the line of Cain. It says, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. And settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Just pause there for a minute. I want you to see first here that the battle brings consequences for those who are aligned with God. Abel was the first martyr of the faith, but he's the first in the line of many. There will be countless other people of God who are put to death because of their love for God, of their worship of the one true and living God. 
In the New Testament, Jesus warned his disciples. He said, I am sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. You will be hated by all because of my name. Success in the war, in other words, does not mean there aren't costs and consequences. The greatest battle that we will face is a battle for our faithfulness. In in the face of, of temptation, in the face of persecution, even in the face of martyrdom, we do not resist by force, we resist by faithfulness. I had in my mind the, the, the scene in Braveheart. You know, you know that movie, right? Um, Mel Gibson, William Wallace, where he's rallying the troops before the great battle. And you know the famous line, right? right? They, they shall take our lives, but they shall never take our freedom. I don't know what freedom you have when you're dead, but okay. But you know, you know what's, what's true is this in the battle, you know what the rally cry of Jesus is to his army? They may take your life, but they'll never take your faith. They can destroy your body, but they'll never destroy your soul. They may take everything you have in this world, but they can't can't take me away from you. Losing the battle brings consequences as well. We see that here with Cain. He's a living, breathing example in that time of choosing sin means choosing suffering. And this is the first, this is fascinating, this is the first instance in the Bible when a person is cursed by God. And what Moses is doing is drawing a direct line all the way back to Genesis 3, 14, 15, where the serpent himself was cursed. You see what he's saying? He's saying, Cain, you are of your father, the devil. You're cursed like him. But he would not merely become a a wandering, a Bedouin in the wilderness. The curse went beyond that. All of his relationships with his family were now broken. They were shattered because of his sin. He he was a lifelong pariah on the earth. The earth itself would be his enemy. And, And it's interesting that Cain actually understands the significance and implications of the consequences. Right? He, he says that he will be driven from the face of the ground and that he will be hidden from the face of God. He knows what this means. I, I once, uh, think about this, like I, I once had access to the presence of God. Now, like Adam who was cast east, exiled east of the garden, I'm going to go east even further. Every time you hear in the book of Genesis, they went east, they went east, they went east. You can see this. Listen, there's a further slide away from God. He separates himself and his family from the presence of the Lord. No greater punishment. Listen, sin brings no greater consequence than this reality, separation from the presence of the Lord. And look at Cain's response to his punishment. He does what we all did as kids and what all our kids do to us as parents when they receive their punishment. That's not fair. That's what he's doing. He's the first baby in the Bible. Oh, it's too much for me to bear. You know what would have been awesome? At this moment, if Cain said something like this, I deserve this and so much more. God, would you forgive me? Would you heal me? Would you change me? Would you restore me? 
But instead, he looks at the consequences and he says, I don't like this. He goes, stomping up to his room, slamming the door. And this is the crazy part. Even, even while he's acting like this, rejecting, here's what you have. God is being so gracious to him in his sin. And he is shutting the door on grace. He's refusing grace. He felt fear and self-pity, but no remorse, no godly sorrow, no repentance. God is still so merciful and gracious to him. Even, listen, even in his sinful response, God is gracious. Isn't that awesome? He, he marks him off. He's like, okay. He's like, you think somebody, you know, you're going to live a long life. Somebody's going to try to kill you to avenge your brother's death. Yep, that's more than likely. I'm going to be merciful to you, even your sinful response to my grace. I'm going I'm to mark you off. Now, there's been dispute for years over what this mark is. We don't really know. Some people speculate it's some kind of a tattoo. Cool, first tattoo in the Bible. Some people think maybe it was a hairstyle, which is crazy. I don't know how they got there. Uh, some, <laughs> even weirder, some people think that you know, God gave him a dog and that protected him wherever he wandered. First pit bull, I don't know. <laughs> but the point is this. God, God demonstrates an amazing grace to him in this moment. And the, you're like, why would God do this? Listen, the same reason that even though you suffer consequences for your sin, God continues to shower grace upon you. He doesn't give you what you fully deserve. You realize this? None of the consequences you suffer for your sin are ever what you fully and truly deserve. Do you realize that? And in the midst of what God is, you know, you're, you're reaping what you sow, God is still saying, but even that, I'm going to be gracious. I'm going to be gracious. Why? Why? Because the kindness of God is trying to lead you to repentance. Parents, what a great model for parenting your kids, right? Do they deserve consequences? Amen, right? Yeah, of course. But even in the consequences, listen, grace, grace, it, it's a mixture, isn't it, that, 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 that draws somebody to repentance, isn't it? It's a mixture of consequences that are legitimate and healthy and right and grace that says you can still be loved. You are still loved. You're still welcome. You can still be accepted. I will forgive you. I will cleanse you. I will restore you. That's the picture of the gospel. And some of you today, listen, you're, you're just... You're shutting the door on grace. You have been for years. You've been fighting and resisting. You're stomping your feet. You don't like your life. You don't think you're getting what you deserve. You, I promise you, you don't want what you deserve. You don't want what you deserve. And God has mercifully spared you from giving you what you deserve, despite what you may be actually asking for without realizing it. And you know what God is saying instead? Come to me. I want to forgive you. I want to delight you in me and my glory I want to restore you to my presence. I don't want to keep you from my presence. Three consequences of sin that we just we see in these next verses. Let me read them and then draw them out. Verse 17, it says this, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he had built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. 
to Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methujael, and Methujael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of an instrument of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. This is a, a sad commentary on the line of Cain, but we learn some things from it. Here's, here's three I want to give you quickly. First, sin clouds reality. Cain doesn't repent. He walks the path of sin. And what we find out is that throughout the line of Cain, those who are on the opposite side, the anti-side of God, their view of reality is now distorted. They believe that life is ultimately about the here and now. Cain has a a son named Enoch. He builds a city, and he names it after his, his son. You see, Cain here is seeking security in a human fortress. And in Genesis, Cain's city actually anticipates a, a later city, the city of Babel, that will be antithetical to the purposes of God, built in defiance of God. Augustine rightly observed that Cain, he says, was the firstborn, and he belonged to the city of men. After him was born Abel, who belonged to the city of God. The focus is on the city of men, not the city of God. And here's the call for the Christian. Listen, we must be resistant to the allure of this world at the expense of the world to come. Paul the apostle, as he finished off his life in prison, he had run the, the race. He had fought the good fight. But he says this in 2 Timothy 4.10. He talks about a disciple of his named Demas. He said, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Loved ones, be resistant to the allure of the world. Focus instead on building God's kingdom, not yours. You say, well, how do I know which kingdom I'm building? Well, here's, here's an easy way. Look at your calendar and look at your money. What do you give your time to? What do you give your resources to? Your time and your treasure will tell you a lot about where your heart is. And if your calendar, listen, is filled up with things that are not necessarily sinful or, or wrong, but they're just filled with what you can get in this world, and there's very little of any kind of spiritual activity, then it, it, that would suggest to you that you're actually focused on the wrong world. If all of your money is, is going to this world and the, the trappings of this world, uh, the excesses of this world, living the good life here and now, and very little of it is going to the kingdom of God and the advancement of the gospel, I think that's telling you in many ways where your heart is. And, and, and you know what Jesus said? He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Don't worry about this world. I'll take care of you, God says. Worry about my kingdom. Set your mind on things above, not things below. Secondly, we see this, that sin compounds sin. What we see here is, again, this increase in depravity. Sin compounds sin. And again, the number seven comes up. You see, only seven generations 
a complete number of generation, and humanity has disintegrated from a world where God was worshipped and adored to a world where humans think they can live without God. Sin has come to full fruition. While the ungodly line moves forward in the development of culture, notice that, that that's, that's depicted civilization and, and culture advances. But what you need to see is that, yes, though they seem successful in a worldly sense, what we're seeing is that they are progressing in immorality. The greater you're focused on this world, the greater you'll find yourself separated from the moral life that God requires. It ends with Lamech, the seventh generation. Again, this picture of a completeness to describe the nature of of humanity in the line of Cain. And here he is, the first polygamist in the Bible, violating God's clear command from the beginning. He's a murderer. He's filled with pride. And church, I would just say that there's a call here for us to be resistant to the power of sin in our own lives, to the subtle ways that the culture of our world can corrupt your life. Isn't it interesting here that that in civilization they produce music and and they they develop uh, uh, resources in order to further things like farming and agriculture and building buildings. But I want you to notice, it's fascinating here, that that the name Tubal-Cain, did you catch that? It's like Cain is still in the picture. I think it's a subtle reminder that though they're advancing society uh, and culture, here's what they're going to be able to do. They're going to produce much good, but they're going to take what even is neutral and use it for evil. Like Cain, who probably used a weapon to murder his brother. There's much in this world that's good and beautiful and, and morally neutral, but, but don't be confused. Listen, there's so much in this world, in the art and entertainment, that are not always morally neutral. Music is not morally neutral. Lyrics are not morally neutral. And lyrics combined with certain styles of music can even kind of accentuate a sinful, evil desires. I mean, all of this I think we see here. I mean, I mean, technology can be morally neutral. The same phone that you can use to connect with people around the world and listen to podcasts and sermons and read books is the same device that you can use to access pornography and look at vile things that will destroy your life. Be resistant to sin's progression in your life. Be on guard against what you choose to watch or listen to. Don't assume that just because it sounds good, it is good. Don't assume that you're wise enough or smart enough or mature enough to filter everything out. Assume that some of the messages that you're hearing and that you're bombarding yourself with are actually sticking, even if you don't realize it. Be resistant to sin's progression in your life and instead progress in sanctification. Be less enamored with the things of the world. Be less enamored with your sin. Be more enamored with Jesus and righteousness. Finally, sin confuses purpose. It makes us think this world is all about us. It's all about our glory. And and here Lamech is this, look at this guy, right? He's worse than Cain. Because he boasts, if, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Traditionally, Lamech's poem here, it's, it's actually written like a poem. It's actually been called the Song of the Sword. 
This guy writes a song about himself and his wickedness. It's probably the number one hit song on the radio back in the day. But this, this is unbelievable. He, he, can you see what he's doing? He's boasting in his sin. He's glorying in his shame. And rather than shame, he wears his violence against a child as a badge of honor. Look what happens when you mess with me. Look at kids, better watch out. <laughs> this guy's a sexual deviant, a violent man. He's wicked, he's oppressive, he's abusive, and he is boasting in it all. Well, you thought God's vengeance upon anyone killing Cain was bad, sevenfold. I mean, that's, that's it. That's, the, you know, that's perfect measure for the appropriate to the crime, but Lamech threatened that he would take vengeance to seven. You think God is, you, you think you should mess with God and that's going to be a problem for you? Try messing with me. This guy's a piece of work. But listen, be, be resistant to pride that leads to destruction. God will not compete with you for his glory. This life, listen, staple of the Christian life, it's not about you, it's about God. It's not your glory, it's his. God blesses the humble. He draws near to the humble and the contrite, which is why we finally see, fourth point and very quick, that the battle belongs to God. Our call is to be reliant. Look at verse 25 and 26. Man, it would be sad if it ended on the song of the sword, huh? But look at what it says. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son, called his name Seth, which means appointed for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. At the beginning of the chapter, Cain, is, it's referenced like this. Eve says, God has given me a, a man. It's almost like it's this picture of how Cain is going to be a sign of, of the seed of the serpent. He's just a man like Adam. He's, he's not faithful to God. But, but here we see her use the term offspring. And the point of the narrative now becomes clear in the battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Listen, God is faithful to his promise. God gives them another child, uh, the appointed one, for God has appointed another offspring. God has promised to give the seed, and, and he's going to accomplish what he set out to do. Seth also has a son, and he names his son Enosh, which interestingly means weakness. It emphasizes that the frail condition of humanity, but a reminder that God will use what the world views as weak to overcome the strong. And then at the end of the chapter, in the context of the godly line, what we see is the worship of the Lord is mentioned. Commentator Ken Matthews puts it like this. He says, Cain's firstborn and successor pioneer cities and civilized arts, but Seth's firstborn and successors pioneer worship. What do we learn from all this? It's very simple. The battle belongs to the Lord. Our success is not ultimately dependent upon what we do. It's dependent upon who God is and what He promises to do. 
there's a contrast here. Success is not what the world thinks it is. It's not the powerful and the strong and those who are creating culture and civilization. It's not the cultural engine. It's not the appearance of strength in the world's eyes that matters. It's the weak and the frail. It's the humble, the dependent. It's the reliant. It's those who call upon the name of the Lord who will experience success in the battle because the victory belongs to God. God wins the battle. Amen. And and so what we see here, listen, so then the question is, well, how then are we to be reliant? Well, here's what we do. We call upon the name of the Lord. How do you do that? Here's what this implies. It implies that people began to pray, God, we need you. We can't save ourselves. You are our strength. You are our life. You are our everything. It implies that we, secondly, praise. These are people who, who know how to worship God from their heart. They know that God wants their heart, and they give God all of their heart. They say, God, I am here for you and for your glory. I'm not boasting in me. All I have is Christ, the seed, the promised Savior. And it implies, lastly, listen, that we proclaim. And the idea here is that people began to proclaim the nature of their God, the character of Yahweh, the glories of salvation, the hope that could be found in Him. Church, this is how we call upon the name of the Lord. We pray, we praise, and we proclaim. There is life, there is satisfaction, there is hope, there is salvation, and no other name under heaven but the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? In the book of John, as the worship team comes out, we're going to respond here in song. But in the book of John, John writes to the persecuted church, and here's what he says. Just listen to this. He says, we must not be like Cain, who is from the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be astonished, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. John continues by telling his readers about the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. And he then writes these words, little children, you are from God and have conquered them. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The seed of the woman will conquer even under the pressure of persecution today. Listen, because the one who is in you, church, is greater than the one who is in the world. We will have success in the battle against Satan because Jesus poured his spirit into our hearts. And no matter how hard the battle, God is faithful in preserving his church till Christ comes again to establish the kingdom in perfection. The battle belongs to him. Amen?